Hi everyone, my name is Justine Rhodes and I'd like to welcome you to the Mentally a Badass podcast where we interview notable human beings that has has been through shit and is ready to talk about it. This podcast is raw and unfiltered because we believe that being authentic and transparent is the most important thing. This podcast's mission is to talk about what people are uncomfortable to talk about. Going through hell sucks, but it builds wisdom. Hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Mentally a Badass. My name is Justine and today we're going to be interviewing Shane Thrapp, who is a CEO of Creating Order from Chaos and Operations Director of the nonprofit Men's ADHD Support Group. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad we found each other on the Threads app. And today we are going to dive into his personal story. We are we're talking a little bit before I clicked record and I learned a couple of things about him and I think that everybody is going to be a very interested. It's also going to be uh, the title on here. So you guys are probably already know what we're about to talk about. But um, but like in every episode of Mentally a Badass, we like to get a little uh, deep back into someone's past to really understand and who they are today. So I'm going to give you the floor right now. Let's start talking about your, you know, your childhood living with ADHD and then also your family. And then you also men- mentioned to me that you were actually in a cult. So I know it's going to be a, a very long answer, but I'm so excited to hear. So here's the floor. Let, let's learn about you. So yeah, again, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so like in earlier, I was sitting here kind of just brushing over everything. Your reaction was priceless. Yeah, um, I know. I just I recorded it. <laughs> so um, my childhood, I was raised in the South. And mm-hmm. I was raised in the rural South. And I don't mean like, oh, yeah, in suburbia. I mean, the nearest town to me was roughly 2,000 people. And I was 20 miles away from it. Uh, down a dirt road that nobody else could get down for some reason I never I've never understood that but it was weird because I was raised on a farm we were fairly self-sufficient my dad was your typical southern guy right like but you know looking back I know I now recognize a lot of ADHD symptoms he never kept a job he always worked for himself he just did everything which Mm -hmm. I kind of passed on to me as well we'll talk about that later but um you know but he also suffered from alcoholism and he was really abusive and that was a big part of it you know I was just very odd you know my Mm -hmm. dad's uh favorite term for me was the smartest dumb kid he ever knew interesting it's like a insult and a compliment at the same time Right. And that was a lot of like the whole dichotomy. Yeah. The dichotomy of my father was just like, he was both my hero and my Mm -hmm. villain of my story growing up. He was the, you know, like he saved my life a number of times. I've been bitten by three different types of snake, all poisonous. I, you know, he killed a bear for me. He killed a panther for me. By the way, panthers aren't supposed to exist in Northeast Texas, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. And, um, just a large number of different really confusing situations that when it came to my dad and he, looking back again there's a lot of evidence for ADHD mm-hmm. I didn't know I had ADHD I also didn't know I was on the spectrum I just thought it was weird mm-hmm. because everybody around me was just very normal 
and kind of getting out of it though i was like like when i started going through therapy like my therapist was like no no that's not that's not normal like what you grew up in is not normal well everybody's dad was alcoholic and abusive she's like i understand that culturally speaking that's what you dealt with but that's not that's not how it's supposed to work i'm like mm-hmm. And of course, like the more we would get into it, the more my therapist's mouth would kind of drop open and go, oh, honey, no, oh, no. So some of that had a lot to do with the cult. So I was raised early on in a Southern Pentecostal church that was very, very Old Testament. The women weren't allowed to wear regular clothing. They had to wear cotton dresses, you know, they weren't allowed to cut their hair. Men were supposed to grow beards. Like I said, very Old Testament. And, you know, I went through Sunday school just like all the other kids. But for me, it was very weird. Mm-hmm. I did not understand the concept of a deity. It was... I also didn't understand the concept of a deity that was very into, like, genocide. Mm-hmm. So there was one day whenever I was there with my grandma, my mom had left. uh, It was one of the periods where my mom had left my dad for a short amount of time. Um, And I was there and we were in the church. I was fairly close to the the front of the church. And the pastor was that fire and brimstone kind of uh, pastor. 11 years old, socially awkward, impulsive. The pastor is up there yelling about the fact of how if people want to find their way to heaven, then they had to be more like Noah, willing to take the chances to do whatever it took that God told them to do to follow the laws of the Bible. And part of it was, you know, a warning. Do not be like the mothers holding their children up while the floodwaters covered their faces. Do not be like the uh, men trying to clamber uh, upon the ark as the floodwaters drown their families. And for me at 11, that was a very, 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 very confusing thing. Mm -hmm. And so I whispered to my grandmother at the absolutely worst time, why is God such an asshole? Now, the reason why it was the worst time is because the pastor had hit that certain point that a lot of religious uh, uh, leaders and public speakers do, where they pause. Because what they want is the church to go, oh, hallelujah, oh, you know, do those things. I hit that one point of silence with an impulsivity control issue and a lack of social awareness that that was what was about to happen. And so he heard me. So did everybody around me. My grandmother was very mortified. The pastor was livid. So the pastor already had an issue with me. He just thought I was weird because I had ADHD and I was on the autistic spectrum. And so he comes down there and he grabs me by my arm and he calls the 12 leaders of the church to the front and proceeded to try to do an exorcism on me for an hour. So 12 grown-ass men holding down an 11-year-old boy, 
throwing down water and holy oil on him in all of the wrong ways. And uh, yeah, that was one instance where I recognized early on that I needed to just not be that kind of person. You know, I needed to not show those kind of tendencies. And so from an early age, I started learning how to mask, how to hide who I was. Because obviously who I was was not a good thing. It was an evil being. It was some sort of possession by a demon. And uh, from that point, and a year later, whenever I got access to a computer and the early internet, I started learning what, what, what did it mean to be normal? This uh, ongoing quest that lasted me years and years to continuously try to fit into a neurotypical world and being normal. And uh, I learned body language. I learned how to recognize inflection and find the different ways to be popular and understand how to do storytelling and build personas that I could use whenever I wanted to fit in with the people around me. And I prided myself on being a chameleon where I could fit in with the black people. I could fit in with the gamers. I could fit in with the jocks. I could fit in with the uh, nerds. That one was actually a little easier because the nerds were all kind of like all along my same vein of things. So it was easier yeah. for me to hang out with them. And, uh, but obviously I always wound up hanging out the most with the outcasts, you know, the other people who seemed to be a lot more like me. And I was large, not overweight, mind you. Um, I was just large. And so the outcast used me as kind of the shield from the bullies. And so I said, you know what, this is where I find my niche. This is where I find my purpose as a teenager was bullying the bullies, being the, the, the stopgap between them and my friends and protecting them. And I developed a pretty hardcore case where you didn't hurt my friends. And by the way, I still have that. Like I'm ride or die for my people. The people who yeah. accept me and love me and care for me, I'm, I'm literally, I'm ride or die. Yeah. Which is good. And that's an that's an awesome thing. So I just kind of became this person who really did my best to protect those around me. Uh, obviously, trauma response to my dad being who he was and bullies being what they are and kids being assholes. So Yeah. I mean, you definitely I feel they they say that people who've been through a lot of trauma are the ones who ended up protecting everybody else because they don't want them to feel what you felt. And I want to take a step back so we can talk more about um your experience um you know in in that cult and having that exorcism. That is like when you were telling me about that I was like oh my gosh like my I felt like so sad that I just want to like crack I'm very empathetic. And then I can definitely tell that talking about that is can be challenging because it kind of brings you back to where that happened so I really do appreciate you know bringing that story on here and being vulnerable so people can also see the signs because if someone maybe I, mean, I don't know if they have like I don't know how it is I'm sure it still happens you know what I mean 
I don't know if these people are like on the internet, like we are listening to podcasts, but if for some reason they are and they hear these signs, like that can definitely be, you know, truly helpful. Um, I was, you know, it's yesterday I was actually uh, talking to my mom about, it's kind of crazy how, you know, back in the day, if someone who struggles with like uh, mental, like from like mental health or they're different, they would see people would, you know, put them on fire and think they're witches and such. We were just talking about that. And I'm like, so you just brought that up to me. Uh, I know they weren't like burning you or anything and things like that, but it's kind of showing that they get scared because they got scared of you because they're like, oh, that's not how like we are. They didn't understand that every human that is born into this world is different. And, you know, at the time they didn't, I guess they weren't, you know, educated on ADHD and autism. Uh, around what year was this? I was born in 81, so this mm-hmm. is probably in 92. Oh, wow. So it's like, if you really think about it, it actually wasn't that, like, uh, long ago. Um, it wasn't, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're, like, old or anything like that. But when I think of no, I'm, things I'm like 42, that. So, uh, like, <laughs> I, so, but, like, here's the thing, you know, when, when people think about, like, the times, right, mm-hmm. it's one of those things is, like, oh, the civil rights era was in the 60s and 70s, right? And mm-hmm. slavery was in the 50, 1850s and, and going back. And it's really hard to kind of quantify and understand the time frame. Yeah. And people don't realize that even in the 90s and even in the double aughts, we still dealt with severe racism, especially mm-hmm. in rural areas. Mm-hmm. In fact, the area that I'm from in Northeast Texas, there was multiple schools that were all white. Not because like they were segregated or anything like that, but because the authorities would actively discourage African Americans and Hispanics and um, other uh, minorities from living in that area. Interesting. And, like the first time I ever saw a black person in my entire life was in fifth grade. Huh. Wow. And like I said before, like eighties, nineties, like it wasn't like during segregation and such so but, you, but as you were saying it's like they weren't actively being like oh no black people can't go to this school it was just in a way of like a manipulation to get people to not to discourage people from going to a certain school to you know induce fear into them which is insane and it's also just really sad like that even though it's still we're still having issues today in 2023 which is really you know sad and it's kind of crazy I, I mean I grew up in a I grew up in New Jersey, so I grew up in a well-diverse area, mostly Hispanics. You know, we had, I grew up in, in a, um, classrooms that had black people in it. So being grown into that, I just thought in my head, I, I mean, I read it, you know, we learn about racism in school and such. I, in my head, I really thought, oh, that was, we, 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 uh, we, uh, we fixed that. We're good. Like as a kid, I thought that because of where I grew up. And how people treat each other in that area. I don't see people being mean. Like, I don't see, like, I, it, we always all, like, everyone's all different skin colors and we just all hang out. Like, no one is discriminating against one other based off their, you know, skin tone. So being brought up in that, in that town, I just really was like, oh, so God, I have to deal with that. That's horrible. They have to deal with that. But in reality it was still hardcore happening where, you know, where you grew up. I mean, I, I, I was, um, I was born in the nineties. Um, 
and you know had like my core elementary stuff like early 2000s so it wasn't really that far but it's actually you telling me this now and then also just like my audience hearing it's like wow um so when did you move away from um from where you grew up so for me you know and kind of going back to the whole cult situation and kind of like hitting that that area like when I started realizing there was a lot of things wrong with where I was at was when I was like 14 or so and that's because my gram had kind of decided that she was done and like she confronted the pastor the guy Mm -hmm. who originally had done the things um and like a woman standing up to him was absolutely insane and but my gram was nobody's fool she was also pretty fucking hardcore yeah and you know in the middle of the church she called him down and she like she she like came down on him like Jesus hitting the Pharisees. In fact, I even think she called, she actually used the, the, the same um, um, uh, quote, uh, scriptures in the Bible where Jesus is, break, Jake is break, breaking down the Pharisees talking about how their hippo, uh, hypocrisy is so blatant. And um, he threatened her and she goes, you can threaten me, but this 38 will stop you. And so, yeah, but um that was like kind of the beginning of the end for me. And then when I was 16, my mom left my dad for good, left my dad for good. And, you know, that was when everything really went south for me because my normalcy had been shattered, right? Because my mom was always there to slightly protect me. Mm -hmm. But when she left, she didn't take me with her. Mm -hmm. She left me with the guy who, at this point now, only had one target for abuse. And so I dealt with that for a couple of years. And this is when I had a pretty raging drug habit start. And, you know, that's one of those things that we deal with when we have ADHD is the higher likelihood of gaining addictions. And for me, that was the thing that would take me away. So books, weed, and um, alcohol. Now, ironically enough, my dad helped me by not, by me seeing like the worst things that alcohol could do. So I didn't really get a raging alcoholism addiction, but, you know, I did develop a pretty hardcore habit and I was not challenged through school. I was too smart. I read all of the textbooks before everything was said and done. And so I could just coast through like so many people do who do have certain gifts when it comes to ADHD, autism. And, but as I got older and dealing with this whole situation with my mom and dad, a couple of years later, I kind of just left my dad. In fact, I got him arrested because he pulled a gun on me. Oh, wow. And um, so, but I moved in with my mom for a year. And then, you know, after I turned 18, my mom decided, well, you know, this is the time for you to kind of sink or swim. And so she moved to Houston and left me behind in Northeast Texas. Uh, I was not, I had not graduated at this point, but I did graduate. And then I was just kind of thrown out there in the world with absolutely zero structure. Because here's the thing, you know, school provides structure for kids with ADHD. 
Like mm-hmm. it gives him a structure. But when you wake up one morning and you don't have to go to school, right? This actually happens in the summertime for a lot of people, by the way. This is why kids lose their shit in the summertime <laughs> when it comes to ADHD. Um, we don't have that structure. And so we have to, uh, as parents, we actually have to provide that structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of parents don't realize this. And they're all of a sudden, they're like, what the fuck is wrong with my child? They've lost their goddamn minds. Um, that's why they lost their structure. And you mm-hmm. have to, we have to have external tools put in place to provide structure for us. But um, what I, I didn't know what to do with myself. And like, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll go to the army, right? like that but i'd injured myself playing football and that injury was severe enough that the army wouldn't take me i couldn't afford college because i had to live off of working for burger king or mcdonald's or whatever fast food place i was working at i jumped literally from job to job to job trying just to survive i was homeless three times you know i was living out of a car or i was squatting in a um uh, in an abandoned house without electricity I also apparently was really good at dating, strangely enough. All good of that body language, yeah, all of that body language stuff that I had learned and the masking and things like that. Mm-hmm. I was really good at talking to girls. <laughs> Weird. Um, but so I never had a I never had that problem. And I had a lot of good friends who would help me as much as they could, but Eventually, I kind of, I fell into another trap going to a different church, which was actually a really good church, mind yeah. you, but mm-hmm. it was a church. And I met this woman, and she was, seemed really cool. And she was African-American, ironically speaking. <laughs> what I did not realize was that she also was a narcissist. And people with ADHD happen to fall into this really weird trap when it comes to narcissists. Mm-hmm. When we first get into a relationship, we tend to hyper-focus on the person we're with because people with ADHD feel things more. It's literally in how our brains are structured, our limbic system, the emotional center of our brain, along with the amygdala, mm-hmm. and how our uh, memory works and time blindness. All of this combines into a system that makes us very susceptible to abusers. Because we hyper-focus so hardcore on all the really cool, amazing things and we're sucked into that new relationship energy mm-hmm. that we ignore all the red flags. Mm-hmm. And the person we're with loves that attention. They love that attention. And narcissists actually have to, that's part of their thing, the part of their brain that understands empathy and things of that nature is kind of twisted a bit. Mm-hmm. And so they get emotional satisfaction from manipulating others. Well, if they're able to manipulate a person super easy and get all of this emotional love and, and all of those things, there's a certain draw there. And so we fall into those traps, especially if we're autistic and have certain social cues that we miss sometimes. Right. It's really yeah. hard, hard to learn body language of the narcissist and, and, and a sociopath yeah. when there's very few body languages of, yeah. of narcissists. And stuff. I never I never dated a narcissist, but I did have an experience where I had a client who was one and I was ignoring all of the signs because at first she seemed oh like super nice and everything. Um and I also like 
every client meeting that I, every, uh, every time I have a new client always am straight up about, you know, um, being transparent if something's wrong or, uh, and I'm also mental health really important and, and things like that. And if there's ever a problem, we gotta be, you know, be both adults and talk it out and stuff like that. Um, but when we did have an issue and I did go to her and I say, I don't like this. It's, um, and I say things nicely too. And then she would just blame me. And it was basically exactly like what a narcissist does. And, um, and I, it was, I guess, really hard for me to read like, you know, bilingual languages because everything was like really more on like face FaceTime, but anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just glad that I'm out of that. I was like two months of that kind of abuse, but I came and imagine like you said you she was your first wife, right? Yeah, we got married and she got pregnant, and the church mm-hmm. was super adamant that okay, yeah. she's pregnant, you have to get married, yeah. kind of thing. But I, I hadn't recognized that all the those I still hadn't recognized those red flags though. I like the isolation and the constant need for my attention to the point of like I couldn't hang out with my friends I couldn't go do anything I I my job in her role like had to be exclusively all I thought about and my job was to make money so that she could be a housewife that's Mm -hmm. what she wanted to be Mm -hmm. like her literal words was I want to be barefoot and pregnant and I want to be at home and I want Mm -hmm. you to work I want you you to be the provider and of course, mm-hmm. this fell into the whole social construct that men are supposed to be the providers and mm-hmm. that, you know, my job was to provide. Well, a few months after we got married, she said that there was a lot of opportunities in Maryland. And so we, that's where we moved away. We moved from where we live to Maryland, and I did not have access to any kind of support system. Mm-hmm. I started working. Yeah. Yeah, usually they do that so you don't have a support system. That's like part of it. That's yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, but it is. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't have any friends, and I just mm-hmm. my only thing I was supposed to do was work, and that's what I did. Now I still dealt with the same issue. I still dealt with going from job to job and and things of that nature, but I had a lot more motivation because of kids. Yeah. And. So I did what I was supposed to do. And to the point I was working anywhere from 80 to 100 hours a week when I was working. When I wasn't working, it was dealing with constant abuse because I was never good enough. I either didn't do the chores like I was supposed to do or I didn't do the job hunt like I was supposed to do. I didn't, you know, nothing was ever good enough. And then even when, and then eventually a few you know, like a couple of years down the road, about three years in when my uh, daughter was born, even then I was a failure, even though I was working so much, you know, I, you know, working 12 to 16 hours a day and then coming home and still being expecting, expected to do the dishes or chores around the house. Wow. No way. Still, still being expected to be a father and play with the kids. Wow. That's crazy. I feel like when it comes to house duties, if you're working 12 to 16 hours to provide and she's a stay at home, she should be doing that. With the kids part, of course, I, I still believe you should still, you know, take care of, the, you know, be with the kids because the kids don't know better. And you want to make sure they feel loved and secured by having a, a father figure. But when it comes to dishes and cleaning, I just feel like if you're working like 80 hours, like that gives you a right to not have to do any of that stuff. 
You know what I mean? You would think so. Yeah, but now, you know, I, I there's something I want to talk to you about after this. I just can't talk about it on recording. Um, but as off recording, I want to like talk to you about something. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So- <laughs> and so, you know, I was still dealing with so much though. Now, I accidentally found ways to solve problems for myself, though, doing this, because I was working so much, I was gaining a large number of different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And part of that was I started learning about management and project management and leadership. One of the really cool quirks was body language, understanding body language. Yep. And, but also understanding people on a logical sense. And then there's this weird synergy between my ADHD and autism, where I understood systems in a intuitive way. Mm -hmm. And ADHD allows me to learn things in an accelerated manner. So when I would go into a company as a manager or a consultant or whatever the temp agency had found for me, I would see these systems and because of how I see things and actually how a lot of people with ADHD see things, I saw the failure points. See, people with ADHD, when they look at a project or when they look at a chore or when they look at a thing that they're supposed to do, they don't just see, I need to call XYZ person. Mm -hmm. They don't just see, I need to do clean the kitchen, right? They don't see that. They see, I have to do the dishes. I have to clean the counters off. I have to clean the uh, stove off. I have to clean the uh, island. I have to sweep the floor. I have to mop the floor. My kids are going to be playing in the, that room. My wife is going to need me to go do that thing. There's a lot of uh, poop in the cat box. All of the things we see, all the different things. And we see all of the things that we're going to fail at, which is super overwhelming for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For me, though, it was a weird synergy thing. So when I go into a, a, a job site, I'd see all the different ways that it would fail, and I'd bring people's attention to those things, and people started noticing I had that skill set. So mm-hmm. I started pitching myself in that manner, and that actually turns into a project manager for a lot of people. And that's where I found my niche, is a project manager. Oh, my God. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. I just like something just I, okay. Sorry, I want yeah, no, we'll to. We'll get into we'll get into it because I, I I have a feeling I know exactly where you just fell into it. Um, <laughs> so so what I started understanding was I was really good at being a project manager. I was horrible at staying at a job long term. In fact, I recognized I was just getting bored, which mm-hmm. is a large chunk of what happens to us because yeah. the motivations for people with ADHD are interesting novel challenges that have urgency and follow our passions if you don't find that or if you lose those things you get bored and when we're bored we're done we check the fuck out Mm -hmm. and so i fell into that um by that solution by accident Mm -hmm. again i didn't know i had adhd i didn't know i was autistic i had no clue but I did know I did really good in the short term doing some sort of type of project management for companies I enjoyed working for. Mm-hmm. And so I started focusing on that as work. I would go to the temp agency or recruiting uh, agency or headhunters and I'd say, here's my skill set. Here's my certifications. Here's where I've worked. Here's my letter of references that I've built up. 
Mm -hmm. I, I'm looking for project management positions that give, you know, or anything along those lines, business, de business development projects or technology development projects or anything along those lines that allow me to work there for three to eight months at a time. And that's it. They would find me those jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I have, I built my entire career on working three to eight months at any job that I went to. Interesting. And that was how I kind of fell into being fairly successful. Still wasn't good enough for my ex-wife. Uh -huh. We eventually wound up getting a divorce whenever, uh, when I was 27. And then I spent about a year and a half trying to rebuild myself because I had been put back into a situation where I thought it was a failure, no matter what success I had. I have been put into a situation where I thought I was a horrible father. And in fact, I was not a good father. Um, I did take my frustrations out from being abused by her on my kids in a large number of different ways. I would yell at them and I would hit them, you know, punishment, right? Spankings and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. my, my bar was set super low, by the way, like, because as long as I wasn't like, beating the living shit out of them then I at least I wasn't being my father yeah I, you're saying. I wasn't like going out of control and hitting them for no reason yeah I was not being my father so they would do something wrong I would spank them we are a product of our culture and environment mm -hmm. so yes I will admit fully that I was a bad father because I was in a situation that you know caused me to lash out at those around me including my kids mm -hmm. part of adhd is emotional dysregulation yeah. it's also part of autism and we react when you also have trauma in a mix which most of us do 80 percent of people have some sort of ptsd when it mm -hmm. comes to adhd and autism mm -hmm. we react to the situation but usually with the memories and anger and fear and frustration of all of the past times that thing has happened. Somebody says something the wrong way, a child does something a certain way, mm -hmm. we react. Yeah. But we're not reacting to them, we're reacting to our memories. And when you- Makes sense. Are an adult and you have more agency and you lash out with the anger that you have towards your mother or father or peers or things like that, I'm a grown-ass man. I can fight somebody if I want to. <laughs> yeah. Right? I, as an eight-year-old, I couldn't fight my father. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but. After was, a year. Yeah. Oh, after sorry. A, no, but after a year and a half of recovering from that, mm -hmm. I developed a really clear understanding of who I was. Again, not without knowing about ADHD. And. I just learned to be authentically who I was and be happy with that and be happy with living my life, doing the best that I could, following my strengths and my values. And that's how I met my current wife. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. She's a special needs teacher. And that's awesome. There, and from there, it's just been rebuilding my life constantly over and over again. Every time I fail, learning from it. Mm -hmm. Every mistake I make, learning from it. And just finding the happiness and joy in helping other people not go through with what I did or at least heal 
if they have. Yeah. I feel like we go through so many different like chapters and phases in our life. And if you think about it, like every era you go through, you're constantly, it's doing better and better and better and better. So you went from, you know, growing up in an abusive household with your dad beating you and then you being in a cult and, and exorcism, like that's like super, super, super dark. And then like, look where you are now. Like it took some time, but you got there. And so um, the one thing I was going to say, which kind of like blew my mind um, was when you were saying how you can, your brain can see like, oh, well, what this can go wrong or this can go wrong. Like how our brains can analyze that. When I used to work for, uh, when I used to work for Disney, um, we'll have meetings about, let's say, any product launch or whatever, and then they'll tell us, okay, if someone says this, 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 whatever, like they'll do what they can to prepare us for the calls. But I would always be the one in the meeting, always being like, well, what if someone says this or what is this? Like I'm always kind of like, I was literally always the only person too in the meeting, mm-hmm. and I'm like, am I just annoying? Like. And now when you're saying that, I'm like, okay, maybe it's like, cause my brain is like, it's just like, like, you know, something it's, a, it's and it's a good thing because it's, it's good to just so things like don't, fail. I like to prepare. And I just thought it was because like, I always get like, I always hear when people yell at me over the phone. Cause that's just like my trauma with getting bullied and mistreated and such. So I just thought that was the reason why I always on my brain always feels like it has to find, okay, what could possibly go wrong? But the that makes sense. Like when you were explaining that, I'm like, oh wow. And and it's and it's a skill set. I also do it in my today life, um, with my social media stuff. Like I'm always trying to do everything I can to avoid fail failure of that. And then also like I have to be, you know, you obviously on social media, you have to be careful with certain marketing things so the company doesn't get sued. My brain is always watching out for that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that was interesting. That just kind of like blew my mind. Another follow-up question I have for you, even though that, that wasn't even a question, but a follow-up question I do have for you was, can you tell us how you got out of that relationship with that nar- with the narcissist? Because it's it seems like it took a very hard thing to do i don't know if maybe just as a woman it's hard to get out but i, I want to know like like how you got out of that kind of abusive relationship so this kind of feeds into um a thought i had and, and it was actually re- it's relevant to like when you sent me the email with the discussion points that we were going to make, make adhd affects women and men differently not mm-hmm. in a gender type of uh, thing, mm-hmm. right? Not not because of our gender, but mostly because of our upbringing, right? When it comes to ADHD for men, it's very, it's it's much more ex- ex- external, right? The hyperactive and things of that nature. And ADHD presents in different ways. There's, there's the hyperactive that we see in a lot of children and, and a lot of boys. And then there's the, um, the, you know, um, the distracted and inattentive ADHD that we see in a lot of other people who are more introverted and women tend to have a higher likelihood of having inattentive and inattentive is an internal hyperactivity of our brains. For me, I was diagnosed with combined, which is one of the most common ways. Like we have different aspects of it you know, along with the whole, you know, autistic spectrum and stuff that I deal with. 
I had gotten to a point where I had hit essentially my checkout moments. Like I was just done. I was just surviving at this point. And as men with ADHD, and one of the biggest reasons why I help run a men's ADHD support group is men often suffer in silence, but external externalize violence, mm -hmm. whether in our actions or words or things of that nature. And that's hard for women to deal with in a relationship. We don't know how to ask for help. And we don't feel like we can ask for help because anytime a man asks for help, especially in the South, he's seen as weak. Mm -hmm. And so part of my struggle was going, I can't deal with this. And, and, some, and, and the huge chunk of it was, I recognized I was not being a good father. Not because she told me that, but because my kids would react to me when I was around in fear. Mm -hmm. And I recognize a lot of the signs of how I would react to my dad. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that my bar was too low. So I started trying to be a better dad. At this point, though, I had discovered that my ex-wife had been cheating on me. It's one of those, like, the most stereotypical situation that a person can possibly go through. She had left her AOL open on her on the computer, and she sounds like a movie, had, right? <laughs> and it had done that thing where I was sitting here playing uh, my Xbox and it goes, you've got mail. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I go in there and I'm thinking it's mine and I click on it and, oh, it's hers. However, the, the email, because we had the previews and everything back then, was from a guy. Mm -hmm. And it was an extremely well-endowed guy. And I was like, Oh, okay. And that started a three-hour hyperfixation to find out exactly what was going on and then printing out every email and stapling them all together and organizing them by timeline. And I do sound like And women and it... And then when she came home and I was just like, you got mail today. <laughs> and she was like, you got into my email. I was like, you left it open. And I, I thought it was mine. And that was the first email. And then, yeah. And she just like, okay. She didn't see that she was wrong at all. Not a single that's, bit. That's like how a narcissist is. Yeah. So um, I was done. And I told her she had to leave. Mm -hmm. like, and that was it. I was like, I, I, I didn't, I really didn't make a huge deal out of it. Like, I was angry. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was enraged. Like, but everything was my fault. Like, everything was my fault because I wasn't being a good provider, even though I was working the way I was working, mm -hmm. even though I wasn't. You know, I wasn't being a good husband because I wasn't being you know, a good provider, a good father. 
all of the things that a person could tell a person that that they were a failure at and put all the blame on them for their actions she did it to me Mm. it was all my fault that she went out and she cheated with multiple dudes and girls now i don't care about the whole bisexuality thing that didn't bother me at all right she'd been open yeah. about that but it, at this point it was like the betrayal of the cheating right that's the part that yeah really and it's like oh it, it, obviously it's not your fault and she's just doing it because like she doesn't want to because they can never admit that they're wrong like i had a similar situation like i was being blamed for everything too and i was the one who came hurt and so that's why you know but i it's it's so insane it's so scary too how they their brain truly cannot recognize when they're in the wrong i yeah that's that's crazy so i mean in a way i mean that's obviously stinks that she she did that but you weren't like happy during that marriage because of how she treated you so in a way it was like a blessing in disguise it was your way out of that abusive relationship and now you have a, a wonderful wife now yeah and i mean that's legitimately what it was though because now i, I had an objective i am not the one in wrong here right like this is an this is objectively a betrayal yes and so like i had that i guess confidence in not being the fuck up here mm-hmm. this is the one place where i did not fuck up like they did it and i saw the lack of care and that's where that's where it broke that's where i saw the damage that she had caused me mm-hmm. that was literally the point of healing for me was like i'm not the fuck up here yeah i own right i like i own my screw-ups i own my mm-hmm. failures and my mistakes and stuff like that but the biggest screw-up and mistake here was not recognizing that i'm not the damaged one here i'm not the one that's broken here mm-hmm. i am the i i am the victim mm-hmm. and while i don't ever ascribe to having a victim mentality right i don't want to encourage people to have that but i do want to encourage people to recognize that they are being they are being victimized by an abuser exactly and this that's actually one of the reasons i do what i do for the men's adhd support group why mm-hmm. I do things the way I do for ADHD life coaching through creating order from chaos is to help men and women and people who are non-binary understand how their ADHD affects them mm-hmm. and how to kind of see the red flags and how to see the different things that they need to be aware of socially speaking and also how to find their true selves, find out their authenticity, find their way forward living as a person who has ADHD or autism Mm -hmm. in a world that's designed for neurotypical people and recognizing that we aren't broken we're simply different hey listener if you have come this far into the podcast episode I hope that you are enjoying it and also I would love if you guys if you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, if you can leave a review it helps so much um, in the algorithm to get our podcast pushed to new listeners and if you're on Spotify if you can follow us on there that would be truly amazing and the more you guys share the more that we grow in this podcast and the more we grow the more episodes we can put out for you guys so yes thank you so much for listening and now back to the episode
let's 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 start talking. I mean, you already did start talking about your nonprofit. Um, let's talk about your your company. So so I'm kind of, sorry, I'm just a little con- confused. So the nonprofit you help men, you know, with ADHD, you know, to have like re- like resources and coping mm-hmm. and learning. What exactly do you do for the creating order from chaos? Can we talk a little bit more, I guess, in detail of what you do for that? So creating order from chaos came out, came about because I, um, I had a mental breakdown in 2016 and 2018, my body decided to shut down. And so I became functionally disabled. 2019, I found out I was about to have twins. Mm -hmm. And so my wife, who is super awesome said, you know, you're going to be great. You're going to find a way through this and you're going to be a great dad and a great stay at home father. And that was, that's, that was what I did because I learned to value the fact that by being a stay at home father, I saved our family $1,600 a month for childcare and another $800 a month for housekeeping and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I'm worth $2,400. I found the value in who I was as a man outside of the neurotypical uh, standard. And there was something that resonated there with me. And so I started working with an ADHD coach and I had the idea of wanting to do something, right? Something I could do from home that I could control the hours that I work, that I could help people do like with what I did. And that's where creating order from chaos comes from because that's my skill set. You know, my talents lay in taking that something that's super chaotic and finding the order out of it. Now, again, I'd also, yeah. Now, again, I had also remembered all the lessons I'd learned as, you know, 25 year old project manager that I needed to be able to shift to different things. So creating order from chaos is a blanket company. It's, it's kind of my umbrella. Mm-hmm. And from there I do project management, freelancing, and I do uh, ADHD coaching and relationship coaching and life coaching in general. I also mm-hmm. do business development and I do, Public speaking, I do podcasting, I do <laughs> writing books. I'm an author. Yeah. On five different books currently speak. Yeah. Um, and so it's a kind of a blanket business that allows me to do the things I do. Uh-huh. Now, I fell into the men's ADHD support group last year, last February. And the founder, Mark Almodovar, uh-huh. had like reached out and asked for people to come on and, and help with moderating the group. Now, mm-hmm. the men's ADHD support group is uh, was founded in 2019 by Mark, and it grew from being a 300-person group to being currently over 16,000-member group. Wow. And That's we are awesome. huge. Yeah, and we are hugely, hugely active. We probably uh-huh. have about 75 posts per day. We range about- 75 posts a day on Instagram? No, on, on Facebook in a group. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm working on 75 posts. For a second, I was, no, that's what I was asking. I was like, what? You're posting 75. (laughs) Yeah, but between our, between, you know, our various different things that we do and between what our, 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 our group dynamic does, we are a support group. So people go in there and they ask for help and they ask for questions and they, you know, and this fell into a really good niche for me to help with because I really enjoyed, you know, being able to help and learn 
because I've been learning about ADHD since I found out about it when I was 30, 30, 31. Mm -hmm. And so I have all this knowledge. It's been a hyper-focus for over a decade for me at this point. And so I wanted to share that information, but at the same time, I also wanted to learn from people. Mm -hmm. And because of my background as growing up in the South, I had an understanding and I had an understanding of cultural stigmas around, around having ADHD. And the social standards that men have to adhere to. And by the way, this doesn't mean that women don't struggle with ADHD. In fact, they have different struggles that are just as relevant to what men go through. Mm -hmm. Right? There's the same social uh, 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 double standard for women. And, you know, but it was, it's different. And I'm not a woman. Mm -hmm. And there's 75% of coaches in the, uh, in the world are women. But there's very few men's specific groups. In fact, there's actually no men's specific ADHD support groups anywhere on the internet. Mm -hmm. There's groups that have men's support as a part of it. ADA has a men's support. But groups like CHAD, one of the largest nonprofits in the world, doesn't have a men's support group anymore. Mm -hmm. Because men don't know how to open up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so what we had to do, what Mark decided to do is create a private group where men could go to and ask these questions without feeling ashamed. Yeah. Right? Like, why does Stratera give me erectile dysfunction? No man's going to sit here and talk about that publicly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> why, why can I not control myself when my wife hits me? Mm-hmm. Why can't I, you know, how do I how do I stand up to my wife who's abusing me? How do I stand up to my husband who's abusing me? Mm -hmm. Right. How do I stand up for myself when I'm a trans man and I deal with ADHD and oversharing things? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All of these are valid questions and we wanted to have a group. And so last year we decided to turn it into a nonprofit Mm -hmm. and from there, we've just been growing and growing and growing. And we've been trying to like, you know, we've been looking for like trying to find volunteers to kind of help different in different ways. And like social media management is one of the biggest things that we needed. And so that's one of the big things I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually kind of a like I wear all the hats, right? Yeah. I do social media management, moderation. I help with the Discord. I'm working on a Twitch channel for video gaming because that's a god a huge amount of our our client base is probably on Twitch right now. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's kind of what we all do. And creating order from chaos is the professional side that allows me to do this business and have these different venues of where I can earn money and do and be that provider. But the men's ADHD support group fulfills that that need for me to help yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And it's not a funnel for me. Now, do mm-hmm. I get clients running? Yeah, because I talk about what I do, but yeah. it's not meant as a funnel. It's and mm-hmm. like all of us are uh, coaches or therapists of some sort who run the organization but we don't use it as a funnel right we use it as a tool to raise awareness and that kind of leads into uh, you know i mean does lift our brands up as well Mm -hmm. but for the most part what it's there for is because men need that space to be able to talk about things privately and get answers in a way that's non-judgmental and shitty yeah. And we're pretty tyrannical about that. We don't allow that macho bullshit of mm-hmm. grow a fucking pair and, you know, you just need to be a man and step up and da 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 I roll my eyes when I see that. I still see those comments <laughs> and I'm like, really? I do too. Like, I, it's just but, sad. 
as as a leadership team, we look at those comments and we we try to educate, right? We try to yeah. sit here and say, hey, this is a support group. We want people to provide help and support. Mm-hmm. This is not supportive. Right. Right. And so exactly. our biggest thing is redefining that concept of masculinity that encourages support and being there for men and, you know, really understanding that mental health has to be an imperative part of a man's life so that he's able to be the provider he wants to be, mm-hmm. to be the husband that he wants to be, to be the father he wants to be, is to understand that mental health and physical health and having an empathy and caring and kindness and communication all have to be involved there. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we do. And that's what I do. That's awesome. I think that's amazing that you're doing that. Um, are, is there like a link to the private group for someone to join or, or mm-hmm. did, should they go to their website or so I can know to like put in the description? Yeah, if you go to www.mensadhdsupportgroup.org, mm-hmm. you can you'll find all the links to all of our different social medias and stuff like that that we have. Oh, cool, awesome! All right, so let's end this podcast with a last piece of wisdom that you'd like to provide my audience. Learn to understand your values and your mm-hmm. strengths, and understand that normal doesn't exist i like that i like that i don't know if you're the first to ever say i'm sure some will probably say normal doesn't exist in this world but i'm like i'll quote you on that <laughs> that's awesome that is the philosophy that i learned from one of my therapists who apparently had just gotten fed up with me constantly want uh whinging about i just want to be normal and she mm-hmm. four foot eleven 110 pounds maybe gets in my face as I'm sitting there and literally just screams in my face that there is no normal mm-hmm. and apparently that was how that was the blatant statement that I needed to finally get myself to understand that you should just and, take it from the dictionary like cross it out yeah you know because <laughs> when it comes to the human brain and it comes to the the how our brains work there just can't be there's too many parts of it that make up our who we are. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on here. And thank you for everyone listening to this episode and stay tuned for next week's.